This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It is Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. Together with Culture Pop's Matt Armitage, what makes us human? It might sound like a silly question, but as scientists, philosophers and philanthropists get more serious about the idea of long-term human habitats in space, it's a question we may soon have to answer. Matt, I always worry when we start with a silly question. Hey, Jeff, you know, that's kind of where we differ. You know, where you see fear, I see opportunity. For devilment and misdirection? Uh, we're talking like a, a <laughs> pair of Victorian gentlemen today for some reason. No, um, you know, for episodes where we can boldly go where no facts exist. Although <laughs> today, uh, I think we'll actually be well ground. You mean grounded? No, ground. A lot of today's <laughs> show is about food uh, and the role it may play in defining who and what we might become uh, if we do become citizens of space. And actually, this discussion is a lot less esoteric than it sounds. Uh, as a species, you know, we tend to take a lot of things for granted. You know, we're at the top of the food chain. Mm. We are the dominant species on the planet. But what happens when humans kind of leave or lose that connection with planet Earth? Who are we and what are we when that happens? Um, so, for example, I was listening to the Infinite Monkey Cage uh, podcast recently. That's a really good science podcast. Uh, it was an episode about fire and the subtext was about Australia's bushfires. Mm. Now, one of the most interesting things that I learned and something I, I'd never really thought much about was that fire may only exist on our planet, yeah. uh, because that kind of combustion requires oxygen and an atmosphere very similar to Earth's. So fire could be a uniquely Earth-based phenomenon, unless we actually export those properties to other places around the universe. Well, what about stars? Aren't they burning? Yeah, but it's a different physical process, so it's not fire. Mm. Um, when you look up at the sun, wearing the uh, appropriate protective eyewear, obviously, what you're actually seeing is nuclear fusion. You're not seeing uh, some giant fireplace that's burning galactic logs. Mm. What's this got to do with food? Well, you're not going to want to eat nacho cheese that's been <laughs> melted in the sun. It's going to take absolutely ages to cool. The movie's going to be well over. Um, but actually, when you talk about um, heating food, that is actually an issue for astronauts. Um, you know, I'm imagining that naked flames and even microwave ovens are frowned on in uh, spacecraft mm. and on space stations. And it turns out that the uh, International Space Station's cr uh, space... <laughs> and it turns out that the International Space Station crew mostly add hot water to uh, rehydrated packets of food. Um, to actually heat them beyond that, they have one briefcase size warmer that's very, very slow and only fits enough food packages for three people at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like a really rubbish camping weekend <laughs> where you've got one cooking stove for all five of you, uh, because camping weekends always have odd numbers of people yeah. just to make it really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's become something of a running joke. Uh, the astronauts are up on a space habitat 
that's worth countless billions of dollars. Uh, it uses some of the most advanced and inspired engineering solutions that our species has ever come up with, <laughs> and they have to warm their food in a briefcase. But is food really going to be that important to space travellers? Well, nobody really knows the answer to that as yet, uh, especially as food has to be very different in space. But you only have to look at how important food is here on Earth. So, Jeff, let me ask you, have you discussed lunch plans with the Enterprise team today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think more than once as well. <laughs> yeah. And what, what conclusion did you come to? Uh, a variety of food, you know, food order, delivery order, those kind of stuff. But that, yeah. that's what I mean. You guys don't even go out no. for food together. Those are discussions about what each of you is going to be eating at your desk. Okay, so what are you going to be doing for dinner tonight? I'll be going home and probably just cooking up some meal. Okay, that's fairly straightforward. But, <laughs> you know, that's the best part of two minutes, talking about what you'll be eating or doing at mealtimes mm. today. Is that because you wanted someone else to fill the two minutes of the show for you? Uh, well, it's not like I generally have a problem <laughs> with talking, but um, we only actually stop for questions because my wife said the show's boring when I'm basically just talking <laughs> to myself. Um, but it does demonstrate how important food is to us culturally. And that importance is actually likely to intensify the further we journey away from the planet that uh, represents our roots. But even that throws up some interesting possibilities. Mm, for people who have never been to Earth? Well, I know I'm going to get shouted at now <laughs> because I'm going to mention Star Trek and Picard again. Um, so in that storybook telling of the universe, so human settlements are in galaxies throughout space. Uh, some of the people are you know, earthlings, others are native humanoid species. And there's largely this peaceful coexistence, you know, throughout the entire universe. Uh, of course, apart from those pesky and destructive non-humanoid <laughs> alien species. Yeah, but not all the visions uh, of that future are as peaceful. No, I mean, take a show like um, The Expanse. I'm sure at least a couple of our listeners are fans. They're adapted from the books by the writer James S.A. Corey. And they tell of a much more fractured human species spreading throughout space. Uh, they talk about, well, uh, they have the residents of Mars and other parts of our solar system. They might be of Earth ancestry, but they see themselves as being utterly apart from the humans on planet Earth. The experience of their lives in space, generation after generation, the effects of low and zero gravity on their bodies, cosmic radiation, you know, the harshness of life away from Earth's very welcoming atmosphere mean that they don't see this planet as their home. Most of them have never been here to Earth. Most of them never will visit Earth. So it's very much like the American colonists fighting for independence from Great Britain in the 18th century. You know, they have this idea, why would anyone want to be ruled or subjugated by some remote foreign power, mm. this time on another planet. And that comes back to the idea of what makes us human. Well, yeah. I mean, is it our experience on Earth that makes us human? Uh, is who and what we are as a species wrapped intrinsically in where we come from? Uh, you know, like fire, can you only be truly human if you're from Earth? Or does our DNA trump all that nature and nurture stuff? It's interesting to wonder what extraterrestrial humans actually will become. Mm. Won't we simply be importing our experience, our lifestyle, our behaviours into space? Well, that's part of the point, isn't it? I mean, the, the jumping off point for today's episode came from a story in this month's Wired magazine titled uh, Filling the Void by Nicola Twilley. 
What's interesting is that we think we know a lot about the human experience in space. And most of us know a little bit about the food that astronauts eat. So, for example, kids still love to buy those packets of space food <laughs> ice cream. Um, but we don't often think about the complexities of eating in space or the opportunities. What do you mean when you say opportunities? Well, we'll get more into that side of things after the break. But the actual process of eating in space, the demands of eating in low and no gravity, for example, or even the effect that space has on our taste buds, it offers up opportunities for new ways to eat and enjoy and share food. Rather than heating it up in a briefcase. Well, exactly. You know, so for long-term space exploration, perhaps because it's being driven by private companies rather than quasi-military government organisations, food isn't being overlooked or being treated with such a strict calorie-in and calorie-out approach. Serious research is being done to figure out how we can make a space diet pleasurable. You know, that's not particularly important if you're just spending three months on a space station, mm. but much more so if you're planning to spend a decade on Mars. So my question to you, Jeff, is what do we think <laughs> we know about space food? That it's mostly in rehydrated packets? And yeah, that is true, but we don't often think about why it is. Mm. Um, food in space has always been a big issue. Uh, at the start of the space race, it wasn't known if we'd be able to eat in zero gravity at all. It was thought that, for example, we might not be able to swallow. Uh, the mm. human evolution and the digestion of food is based on the Earth's gravity. So that that lack of gravity might cause food to get backed up at various <laughs> points in our bodies. You see, you see how polite I'm being? Yeah. Um, you know, swallowing we mentioned, but the, the idea was that we might not be able to digest the food or pass it through our intestines and bowel. So there was a very genuine risk, or it was thought that there was a genuine risk that food and drink in space could actually kill you. So how did NASA solve the issue? Surely you can't send an astronaut into space to see whether he or she might die of thirst or hunger or choke on a peanut shell. Well, obviously, NASA scientists are a lot more humane than me. Um, <laughs> I'd have sent them up with some beef jerky and soda and said, yeah, you'll be fine. Um, by the mid-1950s, we'd come a long way with parabolic flights. Now, parabolic flights are those extreme high-altitude flights mm. that do those dives and simulate zero gravity. Uh, they did one with a, to produce an OK Go video, yeah. so you can go on YouTube and, and <laughs> see that kind of stuff. Um, by that time, they could get around 30 seconds of weightlessness, and that was enough to test if you could actually eat or drink something. Initially, the test subjects found it hard, so some people did choke a little bit to begin with, but they learned how to get the food down. And that was the first indication we really had that astronauts would be able to spend days rather than simple hours in space. Do most people realise how important food was and is to our exploration of space? I think the answer has to, to be no. And, and you can say the same of me as well. I didn't realise mm. either. You know, food is a bit of an afterthought when you think about rockets and life support systems <laughs> and spacewalks and all the tests and the experiments that crews get up to up there. Food is just this kind of dull fuel that we overlook. But space agencies can't afford to overlook it. So the first astronauts went up with food in tubes. So it was all very much like tomato puree. You squeezed the meal into your mouth. Mm. Uh, over time, that range of food has evolved and increased. So apparently NASA now makes a couple of hundred mm. different options available to crews today. That's more than my entire diet. <laughs> um, 
And after the break, we'll actually talk about some of the reasons that space food is the way it is and how scientists are trying to break the stranglehold on current thinking and devise new ways to enjoy foods in space. Mm. Somehow all this talk about food hasn't really gotten me hungry, which is no. unusual. You yeah. know? Um, and when we come back, MSP's intergalactic dieting tips. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Bring forth Malaysia. BFM. 89.9, The Business Station. And we're back. It is Fun Friday together with me, Jeff Sandu, and Culture Pop's Matt Amatech. Before the break, we were talking about space and how long-term space exploration could help to redefine what it means to be human and how important food is to those definitions of humanity. So, Matt, we were talking about the packets of rehydrated food that astronauts currently eat. Yeah, um, as you can imagine, you know, if you're reheating food in packets, the chances are you're sitting down to eat something that's going to be essentially mushy. You're mm. not sitting down to a plate of, you know, <laughs> steak and fries. You're eating stuff that you can scoop out of a packet with a spoon. And that formula hasn't been arrived at for convenience. So uh, for starters, the packets of dried food are very light. Mm. Um, so I was recently reading uh, a novel called The Terror, which is about Arctic exploration in the 19th century. Ships in those days would carry enough stores to feed the crew for years at a time. Tons and tons of fresh, preserved and canned foods, which is fine um, because you've got a boat with huge holds that's floating on water. Because you're not hauling those stores into space. Well, exactly. You know, the boat just has to float. Um, <laughs> with space, weight and storage really are at a premium. You don't pack half a ton of cabbages because, <laughs> one, they'll rot, and two, they're going to take up an enormous amount of space. They also require a lot of preparation. You have to cook them, and they're going to produce waste. And you can't just chuck things in the bin and wait for the weekly collection to scoop it up and send it to a landfill when you're up in space. Every gram of food you send into space is going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. So the lighter the food stuff, the more compact its storage, the more sense it makes to take on this kind of mission. So no potatoes? Well, not in the Martian sense of growing your own, no. Um, astronauts have grown lettuce in space as an experiment, but the idea of habitats like the ISS becoming self-sustaining in food is a long way off. Uh, algae might be one solution, but that's not what we're <laughs> going to talk about today because people always get grossed out when I talk about algae and food. Um, but those rehydrated packets... They're not only practical from a weight and storage perspective, they also keep for a really, really long time. And like you said, you can't simply just throw rotten food away in space. No, and this is something I didn't realise. If you eat something up there, if you open a packet of something, you have to finish it, whether you like it or not. Because the best garbage disposal system in space <laughs> is actually the human digestive tract. <laughs> a lot of time and energy has been spent to get waste products out of humans. So there's no point duplicating that process for food waste when we can process the food and leave, you know, no more waste than we already would be doing. Mm. And I guess also there's that issue of the smell of rotting food. You, I mean, you can't just like open the window and air the spaceship out like you would do if you had a car. Yeah, which again would have been <laughs> one of the experiments I did with the first astronauts. Um, no, so the, the Wired article tells the story of one of the astronauts who wanted to take some aged parmesan uh, mm -hmm. with him. Uh, they were fine with the smell, 
But the artisan cheesemakers weren't able to give uh, an absolute best before date because, you know, it's cheese. It mm. might last two <laughs> years. It might last five years. It might last three weeks. Um, so NASA wouldn't allow it because they saw it as being unstable. They couldn't quantify how and when it might start to rot. And if something did start to turn, you know, as good as the ventilation systems on uh, are on a craft like the uh, ISS, you risk that smell lingering for days, weeks, perhaps even for months. So when astronauts apply for personal food items to take with them, they're very strictly vetted. So can you take things like potato chips? You can, but they have to be eaten in strictly <laughs> controlled circumstances. So um, let's go back to those packed foods first. It's not by accident that most astronaut food is very gloopy. And I learned a new word this week, mm. uh, friable, mm. which means crumbly. <laughs> and it means foods like bread, cakes, and of course, potato uh, chips. Space agencies tend to avoid foods that are friable. Because they make a mess? Well, partly, um, but it's because the crumbs don't just break off and fall to the floor that, the way they do on Earth. They float around until... Hopefully, eventually, they're dragged into the, the ventilation system. Um, but it's not just a cosmetic thing. Those crumbs can end up inside delicate machinery. You know, it's hard enough keeping systems running in space without adding kind of food debris hmm. to it. Um, if you think about it, we're not allowed to bring food and drink into these recording studios. And these studios are not keeping anyone alive. <laughs> um and there is also a direct health risk. There's the potential for astronauts to breathe those crumbs directly into their lungs where they can cause life-threatening conditions like pneumonia. So one of the things you won't find on board the ISS is bread because of the crumbs and because it could potentially be a health hazard to the astronauts. They actually have special tortillas uh, that don't create crumbs, which they use to say soak up the the sauces or curries or whatever they're eating. Mm, death by crumbs. That's yeah. you know really really sad. But yeah, so how would you eat fritos? Well, if you want potato chips, you have to eat them up against a vent <laughs> so that any crumbs are sucked in and immediately captured. And then when you finish up, you have to grab a, a vacuum and actually vacuum the crumbs out of the vent. Uh, and it's the same process when you cut your fingernails. You have mm. to cut your fingernails into a vent and hoover them out as well. That's useful, though. Yeah. Mm. Um, and this highlights some of the issues that we're going to have uh, as we transition to a more civilian space population. You know, astronauts are highly trained. They're prepped for the deprivation. And they're also kept very, very busy. So food prep and mealtimes are often snatched on the run for them. But do you think the billionaires on board a space tourism flight to Mars are going to eat a <laughs> packet of chips up against a wall vent and vacuum out the contents themselves? But, you know, I actually love that innovation. You know, being able to have that vacuum when you eat chips because it always falls in my car and then there's, you know, kind of like this well, you're, you're safari gonna, in my car. You're going to love the, um, the helmet we're going to talk about later. You should potentially eat using one of these helmets. All right. So I want to know, though, does space affect your taste buds like uh, flying does? Yeah, but in uh, quite a different way. Um, this kind of grosses me out, but 
Without gravity, the fluids in your body pool in your head. Uh, astronauts have likened it to the experience of standing on your head, but for weeks at a time, which sounds absolutely awful to mm. me. Um, and it leads to a condition they call space face, um, which is a bit like eating food when you've got a really heavy cold. You know, mm. you've got that feeling of heaviness and you've got that deadening of taste and sensation. So there's a real pressure to find food that's still tasty in those circumstances. Uh, again, you know, astronauts have reported a marked increase in their interest in things like desserts and candy, where maybe they've never had a, a sweet tooth before back on Earth. And presumably there's also a psychological component to all of this. Well, yes, yeah, psychologists have identified what they call the break-off phenomenon. So on the ISS, there's a special dome that's designed just for people to sit there and watch the Earth. Mm. Um, because that was one of the greatest astonishments of space travel. It wasn't finding space, uh, not the, the moon or the stars, but it was being able to see our entire planet. And that's something that's transfixed astronauts ever since. Um, it's called the overview effect. Mm. You're overviewing the, the planet. But as you move further away into space, you move away from Earth. You break off or you break away from the planet. And we don't know what the long-term effects of that are likely to be. Uh, there's a fear that it could develop into what's been uh, termed as solipsism syndrome. So that's when the individual becomes kind of detached from reality and they enter this kind of dreamlike state. Uh, for a tourist, perhaps that's not going to be so much of an issue. But for mission-critical staff... That could lead to people making mistakes. And of course, that leads to disaster. So is food really a way to combat those psychological issues? Well, on its own, it's probably not enough, but it may be a kind of critical part of the puzzle. Um, equally so could things like art. Um, for example, mm. you can create physical structures in space that aren't bound by gravity. And that's a really interesting concept to a lot of artists um, because it means you can create shapes that perhaps you could only model on a computer. An upside-down pyramid. An upside-down pyramid, mm. yeah. But more than that, the techniques of creating it would be different. So if you're working mm. on that pyramid, you can actually work with heavy materials that you might have needed a crane or a forklift <laughs> for on Earth. But now you can just spin your pyramid round with one <laughs> finger. Uh, so it's part of this idea of humanity finding additional dimensions in space. All right. Is there a business aspect to this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean... For starters, a lot of these are going to be commercial space flights. Yeah. But um, even certain types of table salt um, are prized for the structure of their crystals. Now, away from the gravity of space, crystals form very differently. So potentially, space-made salt could have a very different flavor profile and effect. I know it sounds weird. Mm. The idea of taking lots of seawater into space <laughs> to turn it into salt is a little bit crazy, but that is just one application mm. because there are plenty of other biochemical processes uh, that use this kind of crystallization. And we could actually end up with pharmaceuticals and entire types of drugs that we can only synthesize in space. We wouldn't be able to create here on Earth. So, yeah, there are a lot of uh, innovation aspects and a lot of business applications to us moving into that space realm. But we're not talking about making new types of food in space. No, but we could produce new types of food for space um, because in space you don't have to sit at a table to eat. Mm. Um, if you want to, 
you have to physically tape your food down so it doesn't float away. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to eat with your hands at all. You can release the food and you can chase it down. You can glide along and catch it in your mouth. It sounds like a fish. Well, you know, you can look at it that way. Um, but space throws that rule book away. Mm. Uh, researchers like Maggie Koblenz, an industrial designer at MIT's Media Lab, um, is specializing in food research that is trying to push this envelope. Um, they're balancing the practicalities we described before, space, weight, expiration dates, with the possibilities of eating in this new medium. Uh, she's actually devised, again, with the fish reference, she's devised this kind of goldfish bowl helmet for her research in parabolic flights because she's interested in the kind of 360 approach to, to food. So she wears this thing and she puts the food inside the helmet mm. and she's just eating whatever's floating around in front of her face. She can put her hands in as well, but that would work for you eating crisps in your car. You mm. wouldn't get it in the, in the thing. Um, so, you know, usually when we eat, our food is resting on a plate. So food is a 180 degree experience. We're looking at a more 360 approach to food in space because in space you could garnish a dish on all sides, not just on that that plate upside. All right. So this is a little bit like molecular gastronomy. Well, that's one of the starting points that they're using. So one of the tests that um, Koblenz has done is with little balls of liquid. So she turned liquids into bubbles using calcium chloride and sodium alginate, uh, which is, again, a quite common in mm. molecular gastronomy. She then proceeded to inject the bubbles inside each other. And without the process uh, and pressure of gravity, when she was on one of those parabolic flights, she experienced them pop one after another. So she'd have the flavor of each wow. bubble and they never kind of, you know, linked into each other. So it's a little bit, you know, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory in terms of an eating experience. And that space face effect. Well, she's also looking at um, ways that uh, flavor profiles change in space because in the same way that the microbes in us behave differently in space, the microbes in food will also behave differently. Mm. Uh, that may change how we uh, perceive the foods or indeed how they taste. So one of the things she's uh, planning to do is send up some miso paste to the ISS later this year to find out um, how its taste profile actually changes. But it isn't just about that taste, um, as well as the idea of, you know, chasing our food or eating it inside one of these big domes. Uh, she's also developing little silicon bones, which can be used instead of spoons. So the idea is to reattach us to that primal part of our humanity where we caught the food, butchered it and sucked the marrow out of the bones. Um, and she's using that process, you know, sucking the food off these bones as a way to anchor us to that sense of belonging to the tribe as we float further and further away from it. Because, you know, we're going to need every edge we can get as we explore further into space. And while growing food on whatever planet or colonies we end up at is going to be paramount for long-term survival, we don't have to be weighted down to the idea of eating and growing food the way we do at home. Um, you know, it's that idea that we maintain our humanity by adding to it and evolving rather than looking to what we can and can't replicate from some 
distant blue planet. Mm. You know, there's that saying, you know, you are what you eat. So I guess, you know, in space, it really would be you are what you eat, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you, can, you can chase it down. The food could be around you. <laughs> you know, you could have liquids that envelop your body and you can suck them off. <laughs> you know, who would have thought uh, food would have been, you know, so important in space? I, to be honest, I'm in the same boat as you. I didn't expect, you know, food to be that of a critical topic for space travellers. Anyways, uh, when we come back, uh, Geek Squawks after this, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.